Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years, and we did not find out until our 29th year of marriage that we were a neurodiverse couple. And we have an amazing 25-year-old daughter who is thriving and doing great on her own. And I'm here with my co-host, Manisa. Hello, I'm Manisa, and I've been in a neurodiverse relationship for eight years, been married for six, and while in school to become a board-certified behavior analyst is when I discovered that my husband was on the spectrum. Awesome. And we are so fortunate today to have a wonderful guest who some of you may actually know as the social Audi. And her name is Carol Jean. And she is joining us today to share a little bit about her journey um, in the neuro, she's going to use the word neurodistinct world. <laughs> so Carol Jean, thank you so much for being here. And if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and introducing yourself. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Mona Manisi. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Carol Jean Whittington. I'm known throughout the autism community as Social Audie. I am the host and creator of Mind Your Autistic Brain, which is its own talk show and YouTube channel. But I also have a private Facebook group where we go in depth and some coaching series and courses where I take late identified autistic adults from burnout to balance. Because most of us discover that we are are autistic, usually after we've hit burnout and we've hit a point in our life where nothing is working. We are miserable. We just can barely function. We go and we're like, please, for the love of God, would somebody help me? And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you go through these layers and you're like, wait a minute. <gasps> this is the thing that I didn't know. I discovered that I was autistic at the age of 39. Wow. I wasn't in I was in burnout, but I wasn't seeking help. I was actually seeking help for my eldest son. And we were at a neuropsychologist's office and this darling little man in his gray hair and his half spectacles and his sport coat looked at me and said, you know, you were missed. And I, wow. in my very literal autistic way went, no, I'm not, I'm right here. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Nobody missed me, honey, I'm right here. And, and he looked at me and he had kind of a little smile like, Exactly. <laughs> he said, you might want to think about coming back and seeing me on your own. And I was like, yeah, okay, but we got to fix my kid. We got to help my kid first, right? Oh, wow. And so did you I, go, go back and see him? Did you I go did? back? I did. It took a couple of months. And then after we went through the whole process, it took about two years for me to like onboard it and digest it because I was so busy trying to really make sure that my, my child had what he needed. But I am the mom of two neurodistinct boys. Uh, my eldest son is autistic and my youngest son is ADHD and I'm both autistic uh -huh. and ADHD. Twice gifted, right? Right. I, I yeah. guess we could call it that. It's, you know, <laughs> double the pleasure, double the challenge. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So thank you so much for sharing that story. I think that is a, a challenge for so many people who maybe have felt different all their lives, or maybe they were tremendous artists but didn't do well in school, or they uh, were amazing musicians but they didn't have a lot of friends, and they wonder why. And then one of their children gets diagnosed, and then they begin that kind of self-journey to figure out 
okay, that child that just got diagnosed is in many ways a mirror of me. And I don't know if that was the case with you, Carol Jean. It is such a very common experience and story, especially for women mm -hmm. who are late identified. And it's usually through our children where we come to our own awareness. Um, and one of the things that I hear quite often and what was so interesting is when I was going through all of the diagnostic questionnaires, the assessments for my son, I remember thinking, I experienced that. Oh, I did that. Or I do that. I think that way. And, it, you know, those little pieces had started to sort of trickle and filter into, hmm, you know, this, this is interesting. And then, of course, when he said that, you know, hey, you know, you were missed. I was like, oh, no, no. And I was like, really? Could, could I have been missed? I mean, for all of the times I had been in therapy or gone to a clinician of some sort from some site type of help, not anyone had ever identified this. I mean, I wasn't even identified as ADHD until I was in my mid-20s. Mm. So it was just one more thing where I was like, it didn't quite fit. It was kind of like Cinderella, you know? It's like, this didn't quite fit, you know? I was like trying to squeeze my butt in it. But once you kind of get to that certain point, it's like when he said that to me and I really started to look at what does being autistic really mean? What does it mean for me? How have other women who have not found out till they were in their, you know, 30s and 40s identified or, or sort of reconciled this to themselves? And I found this wonderful article by Samantha Kraft, and it was, it, it's out there, and it's one of the ones that so many of us start I with. I love it. What does autism look like for women? What are some of the traits? And I just remember reading through that article, just like ticking the mental boxes all the way down. And all you can think is it's the biggest relief you've ever had. It is the, oh my gosh, I'm not broken. I'm not defective. There's a reason. And then the next is, oh my God, what have I missed my whole life? Ugh. Why? Why did I have to struggle? Why did this have to be so hard? Why didn't somebody know? And then you go through the whole grieving yeah. process and all of that. Yeah, and 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 where are the resources that late diagnosed autistics need and how do they access them easily? So I, I first want to commend you and congratulate you for... Yes. Number one, being willing to go on the journey to get the diagnosis and then to find, and you've used this word, Carol Jean, your legacy, how you want to make a difference in this world. Because what you are doing is you're bringing information, resources, awareness, acceptance, tools, strategies to people who are late diagnosed autistic all over the world. I wish, I wish that these resources had been available when I was married. And I wish that they had been available at the beginning of my marriage. Because four years into our marriage, I was ready to divorce my ex. And we ended up staying together another 26 years. But I knew there was something that was very different 
didn't mean I didn't love him with all my heart, but I knew there was something different. So do you mind talking a little bit about like what brought you from whatever your career was before to choose to go on this journey to help so many people all over the world? It's completely <laughs> selfish. And it's okay. <laughs> it started it started because it's what I needed. There was absolutely nothing. When I started my autism journey at 39, that was eight years ago. I'm 47. Yes, I, I will own it. <laughs> and you look amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it has been one of the things that truly it's, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And that is what this is, but it's so much more, um, you know, that wonderful ADHD aspect to my neurotype and the wonderful things that I have that are part of my, my abilities and my skills and, and my resources as an autistic individual have allowed me to have several careers in my life. I have done everything from real estate. I've been a real estate appraiser. I did that for about 15 years. Um, I come from a real estate family, so that was sort of a natural progression, but I was really interested in the data. And, you know, so, <laughs> so appraisal was where I put in my structure and my data. Um, and, and I've always rolled something into something else. I, I've really run the gamut. I mean, my first undergraduate degree is in fine art. But that was because wow. I started out in communication and I was bored to death. <laughs> I really was. And art allowed me to explore everything that I was interested in and be able to go in depth in any area that I wanted to. And I was never bored. <laughs> wow. So, you know, just you find these different things. And then I went back to school 10 years later and went into vision science and, and studied neuroscience. So, you know, you've got all these different aspects. I mean, I even took my real estate background and worked in the legal field in real estate law. I mean, so, you know, and then I was wow. a hospital administrator. So, there's <laughs> but how creative, how creative. And what you're doing now is so creative and you're taking all these pieces of your career path and you're pulling things together that work for you. That's awesome. That is really terrific. It really came from the online autistic community was probably the biggest gift I ever found to find other people to go, oh my God, I'm not alone. There's other people that get me finally and yeah. that I can talk to. <laughs> but what wasn't there is there, there weren't, there weren't strategic frameworks there weren't mm -hmm. strategies there wasn't a communication of let's take these things that we're having trouble with because burnout is my thing that is my jam i am i can i talk about burnout it is the passion and the heart of what i do because it is the biggest impact in our lives as late identified yeah. autistics you can't do a dang gum thing in your life if you don't have the energy to do it Absolutely. If you can't function, you can't do it. And in our relationships and in our marriages, that is the biggest factor uh -huh. in divorce. It is the biggest factor in complete breakdown and arguments and communications and everything is when the autistic person in the relationship is in burnout and they don't know they're in burnout yeah. or they're in burnout and they don't know how to navigate it, how to get out of it, or even to recognize that they're in it. Yeah. So that's can a we, big one. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because, sure. you know, Manisa right now is in a relationship with her husband who is autistic. 
Um, I was in a 30 year relationship. And the funny thing is that the man I dated after I divorced, absolutely autistic, never been diagnosed. As soon as I met his daughter, I knew, and she has not been diagnosed. Um, the man I was seeing just recently, he's autistic and his son has been diagnosed. So clearly I have a type. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I realize now looking back that I experienced a lot of meltdowns with the men that I was with after my divorce, but with my ex, it was shutdowns. Now, I don't know, and you can help us with this. What do you see as the difference between the shutdowns, the meltdowns and the burnout in relationships? Because I think that would be really helpful for our listeners to know. These are really great questions. And it's something I'm so excited that you've asked me because it's one of the biggest things that we start to identify in late identified life. Like it is just like until you learn about it and then someone explains it to you where they describe their experience of a meltdown or a shutdown. Mm -hmm. And even those moments where mutism comes in, because that can also be mm -hmm. another factor to those shutdowns and meltdowns Absolutely. and burnout. Mm -hmm. um, and when you start to recognize that, you're like, Oh my gosh, there's a, there's a reason this is happening because I've been like internally shaming myself or getting really frustrated. So when you're talking about a meltdown, a meltdown is a temporary response to an immediate situation. Mm -hmm. Now a meltdown is something that it could have been building for a little while, but it's an intense and specific time response that doesn't last for long right mm -hmm. like it could it could last like you can like you've hit your overwhelm limit and it's been like a slow build you know and then all of a sudden you're like that's it i have a total meltdown yeah. in that moment you know it can last for a few moments it could last for you know a couple of hours but there's also this wonderful little factor that doesn't get discussed a lot and that's the meltdown hangover Oh yeah, I've There's seen something it. called the I have seen it. It lasts for a couple of days. Yes, I've seen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what what have you seen that look like for you? Or do you have meltdowns or um, shutdowns or you know? I I have all of it. I mean, yes, okay. I've experienced all of it. And okay. the interesting thing is that um, for a lot of us in late identified life, especially. Um, Meltdowns are something sometimes that we have noticed maybe happened earlier in our life mm -hmm. or like for mine, mine really happened when I hit puberty. Like mm -hmm. I didn't have them as a child, but when my hormones were yeah. all over the place, <laughs> yeah. God help Josh. Cause I'm getting ready to start. I'm, I feel like I'm moving into perimenopause. So oh, go lucky Josh. <laughs> Josh is your partner who we'll talk about in a few minutes. Yeah. So, you know, as you're, you're navigating these different things, you start to look back and you recognize, um, there are times where I now like in my adult life, in my marriage, I didn't realize it because I didn't know I was autistic where I had a full blown meltdown. Like I was holding everything in. I was trying so hard to like manage all the emotions and manage all the stress. Uh -huh. And I distinctly remember during I've been I've been married twice. I'm on my third relationship, you know. <laughs> so we're just gonna be real here. Just, right, you know, right, right. We learn as we go. Absolutely. I, I didn't know I was autistic. And in, in my second marriage, I distinctly remember probably one of the worst 
most significant meltdowns of my adult life. And we had been having an argument for the lack of another way, because I don't particularly believe in yelling, but um, that's not my my communication style for most of the time. Oh, it, it I like be. yelling. <laughs> <laughs> it can be, and believe okay. me, I can do it. Okay. Um, my kids will probably tell you, oh my God, my mother is a yeller. <laughs> <laughs> but really, it, it was in that moment, and I remember we were, I, can t- I, I vividly remember this. I was standing in our bedroom right in front of our closet, and to the left of me was this plant stand, Mm-hmm. solid wood with the marble top and the plants on top of it. And I remember we were fighting about money, mm. you know, one of those good ones, right? Every mm-hmm. relationship has those money conversations that were you arguing and we were having money conversation and he had just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And I just kept getting more and more frustrated. And I didn't know I had auditory processing delay and I didn't know I had alexithymia and I didn't know I was autistic. So all this <laughs> stuff was like burning yeah. and building. Right. Uh-huh. I just remember at one point I'm like, that's it. And I remember I picked up this, the plant stand and I threw it across our bedroom. And we had a huge bedroom and it went out the door into the hallway and hit the wall. And there we had a dent in the sheetrock. Wow. And I remember it took me days. Like the hangover from that one was days and the shame and the embarrassment for losing my control of myself. And I didn't know any of that. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and I want to give Manisa a chance to answer, ask some questions, but I really want to talk about this because um, the person that I dated after my divorce um, had an incident like that. Okay. And it led to um, an arrest. And I wonder, Carol Jean, there's no way we can know this, but I wonder how many people are in or have been arrested because they're undiagnosed autistics who reach that point of a meltdown or an autistic burnout and they throw something, not meaning to hurt their partner who they love with all their heart, but they're overloaded, right? And the police get called in. Nobody's been hurt. But the arrest is for domestic battery because something's been thrown. And, you know, I I really wonder if this is something that, you know, as a community, we need to be educating police officers about. We need to be educating uh, family law judges about and attorneys, family law attorneys. I don't know what you think about this. This is is not one of the issues we were going to discuss, but I think it's really important. No, I think it's a very important issue to talk about. And I think that it's one of the things that is, is, it is a big conversation in the autistic community among ourselves, one to another, especially late identified, because so many of us have gone through divorce. So many of us have experienced those domestic violence calls from one side of it or the other, Um, you know, and are those attributed to meltdown? Most likely, are they contributed to an overwhelm and not knowing? And so you don't know how to manage or recognize or identify those signposts leading up to it. And so the next thing you know, is just boom all over the place and you don't have any tools or strategies to manage yourself or the situation or anything like that. And especially if you um, 
go into a mutism situation where you cannot articulate or you have alexithymia and you have difficulty even articulating all these overwhelming emotions and it just comes out as frustration and anger. Well, the first thing a a police officer is trained to do is to keep everybody de-escalated in safe compartments where there isn't going to be any, you know, threat of violence or physical harm. And, you know, sometimes the worst thing you can do is, is to try and touch, move, or communicate with an autistic person who's in that moment. Absolutely. And so and so that could create even more problems because the autistic person is, you know, flailing or possibly punching in the in the air or trying to get away. So this is a really, really important issue. And maybe in the future we can do some um either podcasts or work with, you know, police officers who may be autistic friendly, who may be able to educate. I don't know. I just think this is a really, really important issue. Really there's, important issue. Go ahead. There's, there's um, already been national attention drawn to this. In 2019, African-American man named Elijah McClain in Colorado um, was just walking and was yes. detained by the police because someone said he looked sketchy. So you can imagine being autistic and having the police put him in a chokehold, which, which, you know, it killed him, but he had no idea what was happening. He was a very creative, artistic guy. People said he was bubbly. He was very friendly and just literally out of the blue, he was attacked by police because someone said he looked like someone and um, they were wrong. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you're right, um, Mona and Carol Jean. This is something that needs to be brought to attention because um i have friends who have autistic children and they're going to be you know teenagers one day and adults and we've always said that not everything needs to be handled by the police some things need to be handled by mental health um caregivers or we've got to find some way i think carol jean you're doing great work and bringing awareness to this community that there's so much thinking that needs to shift about how we see things absolutely absolutely what a what a horrible tragedy and i'm sure it's going on all over and i feel like this is not an issue we've discussed on the podcast yet and i don't i want to go um maybe broad with it and maybe talk about what what do you think a um couple can do when they're seeing their partner go into meltdown go into the shutdown, experience autistic burnout, maybe what are some of the strategies? Because I'm sure anybody that you talk to who knows they're in a neurodiverse relationship can tell you, I think this was a meltdown, or I know he or she was having a meltdown, or during this shutdown, he or she did not talk to me for weeks or days or hours, and I have no idea what set that off. Um, Are there strategies that folks can use Yes, there are. And so I want to come back, circle back to your original question was, what is a meltdown, a shutdown? Yes, yes, yes. So we talked about what a meltdown is. A shutdown is where essentially you are so inwardly turned, like you are not communicating, you're not processing it. So it's not like you're just like being obstinate and refusing to speak to someone. You are not capable of formulating and articulating to audibly communicate or even be able to string together the thoughts to text or write. Uh Because a lot of times, especially in partner communications, 
somebody thinks you're just being a jerk. You're just giving right. me the silent treatment. Right. Mm -hmm. And especially for the autistic person, it's like, oh no, that's not it at all. I, right. I'm not able, I'm not capable in this moment. My brain has gone into protection mode because from the neuroscience side of things, our brains do two things. Number one, it seeks to protect us and keep us safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Number two, it seeks to automate and conserve our energy. So things are become a habit. So we have to look at it from both sides of that. And, and our brain is seeking in a shutdown, in a meltdown, in a burnout. Our brain is doing its number one task. It's keeping us safe. Absolutely. So when we're experiencing that, it can be interpreted so wrongly mm -hmm. if we're not aware of it. And so in a burnout, a burnout is the result of long-term stress mm -hmm. that has not been given a relief or an outlet, there has been no restoration. And so a burnout is a culmination, an autistic burnout in particular, it differs from neurotypical burnout in that in an autistic burnout, we experience a loss of skills and abilities, wow. which can be permanent or temporary. Wow. Or we can regain those skills, but not to the same extent they were before we went into burnout. So your question was, you know, what are these things and what are some strategies? The number one thing and one of the free resources that I offer is the Burnout to Balance Workbook. Love and that. it specifically takes you through the five steps of identifying what led to your burnout, meltdown, or shutdown, because it addresses all three aspects. And it takes you through a series of journaling questions things that you probably never thought about for yourself. And this is a really a good one also that you can do with your partner because a lot of times we need external feedback to say, hey, what do you recognize that I do? Or what are things that you've noticed consistently in a pattern that when this happens, I tend to maybe go into meltdown or shutdown, or do you notice that this was what leads to burnout? And it also helps you identify what those what burnout is for you because burnout is not the same for every person. It's not consistent for the same person through their whole life. I have experienced burnouts as early as six years old. That was my wow. first one I've identified. Wow. And each cycle of burnout has been a little bit different. There's been a different element or aspect to it. There are things that are consistent, which is good because you uh -huh. can kind of use those to pinpoint and there's also ways that you can start to set signposts for yourself so that you notice, oh, I am not making up my bed every day like I normally do. For me, that's a signpost to say, aha, you need to check your world. You need to do a temperature check and see what's out of alignment, where your energy is going out, where your energy is coming in or not coming in, and how do we recalibrate this? Because when you've got those those resources and you and your partner, like Josh and I communicate about this, and I was like, okay, this is definitely one of my signposts. Like if I'm not making up the bed every day, we we know something's happening. Does Josh does Josh have the okay to say to you, Carol Jean, I see that something might be off. You usually make the bed or whatever it is that he sees is different. Does he have your permission to do that? Oh, absolutely. That is one of the biggest parts of our relationship wow. is our communication with one another. And it goes both ways because just because he isn't autistic and just because he doesn't have those same things, 
he still has burnout. He still has signposts of his own that are showing me he is in stress or he isn't overwhelmed. And the, the kindest, most loving thing that we can do for one another is to just do a check and just say, hey, are you, are you doing okay? I noticed that, you know, one of the things that you normally do, you hadn't done it. And, and I know for you, that's something that you value that's important in your day. Do, are you okay? Do we need to talk? And just kind of give that space and acknowledgement. Because sometimes if I'm in the throes of things, I may not have noticed and it may have been a week. And he could say something really kind and give me the space for that. And I can go, oh my God, I hadn't noticed that. Thank you. I just was feeling kind of off and I didn't know what it was. I think this is really important for our listeners to hear because the first reaction they may have when something's gone astray is to scream or yell or be resentful. Um, and that is not going to be helpful. I think the tricky part is, and I know I went through this with my husband in the beginning of our relationship. The tricky part is, are they truly taking the time to, you know, um, to self-regulate, to bring those, the heart rate down, to recover, to then be able to move on and have a conversation, or are they truly just avoiding the issue? Great and point. in the beginning of our marriage, my husband was doing a lot of, a lot of uh, flight, just this is overwhelming, I'm out. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. physically getting in his vehicle and leaving and then coming back as if nothing ever happened. And the way that my brain works is things have to make sense. So then once he would get back, okay, it's round two. Like, we're going to talk about it. And yep. then he's gone again. So now we have learned this through uh, one of our counselors is we take space. And that's when one of us is feeling like things are not going well, the emotions are high, the voices are beginning to elevate. And we say, okay, you have to give it a time, give me 10 minutes, and then you have to come back and continue the conversation until it's resolved. So that was a wonderful because before it was just, he, he was going in a different direction. And like you, Mona, I'm just, I'm mad and I'm frustrated because I'm like, no, we're going to deal with this. <laughs> and so once he got calm, I just elevated him again. Right. So, and I would do the same thing. So yeah. Carol Jean, see how wonderful this is to have this conversation with you. It's I love wonderful. it. I love it. I'll tell you, it's, I, I, I'm over here because I was just like laughing and relatable recognition to me. <laughs> but it's his husband because that is so, that was so me. I was uh. the conflict avoider i mean i was the people pleasing fawn and do whatever i gotta do mm -hmm. to keep everybody happy and like kill myself in the process which is probably why i ended up in such horrible cycle burnout mm. for so many years or just never fully getting out of it and one of the things is anytime conflict would happen because i didn't know i was autistic or because i didn't recognize and no one had recognized to help me and once I learned I was autistic and I learned, oh man, I do have these like huge feelings. Like this isn't how everybody else experiences these emotions. Like I have like all of the emotions and they're all way up here at a 10, right? Maybe a 20 on a 10 scale. And so for me, my body would go into this protection mode of this is a threat. This wasn't just a conversation with my partner or a misunderstanding or a miscommunication or 
or they're frustrated. This was a threat to my survival and my life and my livelihood. And I would run, I'd get out. I would go completely silent or I would do whatever I had to do. And I would give up all of all of me and all of my, whatever I really wanted and just do whatever they needed to keep things happy, which then leads you into even worse burnout because then you start to lose yourself. In the oh my gosh. And you've talked about this on other shows because, you know, both partners experience this loss oh of self. Yes. Yeah. This is so, this is so critical. Again, um, I think that, and I've, I've talked about this and I've said this on um, my Instagram account. I think my ex masked for 30 years. And the reason I say that is based on what you just said. I think his attempt to please me to stay safe in our marriage occurred over and over and over again. And, you know, I, I feel like Manisa and I in 2022, we need to come up with more tools for neurodiverse couples and maybe work with you, Carol Jean, because, you know, the, the masking has to stop in neurodiverse relationships. And, and you're, yeah, I see you taking a deep breath and it has to stop when, or it, it's, it can stop when both partners feel safe, but first that safety has to be created. And I don't know if there's enough counselors or coaches who understand how critical that is. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Carol Jean. I know. I know oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> I know because I, I think I think we're talking You're the truth here, really right? Huge. Yeah. yeah, this is so huge. So, Ali Arena and I partnered for the Coaching Cafe, which we're super super excited about, and we created something called the Communication Ecosystem. Mm. As I was developing this and putting these five elements together, one of the biggest foundational pieces that I, t I teach and talk about in this is finding your zone of safety. That's what mm. I call it, your safety zone. Mm. And, and I, I convey this and talk to our autistic clients about this. You cannot unmask. You cannot function. You can't do anything in life. You can't stretch your boundaries. You can't grow. You can't do squat until you feel safe. Because Amen. we operate out of our zone of safety. When our needs are met and we feel safe within ourselves, and really that's the key. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we've got some physical safety things that we need to be aware of. Like, you know, no one is physically threatening me, that kind of thing. But really our safety starts in our mind. Our safety starts in our heart. Our safety starts in our perception. And as late identified autistic people, we have a tremendous amount of trauma, PTSD, complex PTSD that directly impact our feeling of safety within ourselves. And one of the greatest challenges and part of the process that I teach and I coach is helping people reclaim their trust because we lose the trust that we have within ourselves to make a decision because we feel like we've been told our whole lives, well, that's weird. Why'd you do that? Or God, that was the weirdest decision. But we're very logical. We already mm -hmm. thought about a million things. It just didn't make sense to that person, right? Right, right. And we start to like not do that and we push it down. And so finding that place and reclaiming and, and finding safety, that safety zone within ourselves 
truly, and especially in relationships, I can tell you the biggest, most incredible life-changing thing that has happened to me in my life is that I have a relationship with a man who I, for the first time in my entire life, I feel safe. Oh. And it has to do with that I found safety in myself. Right. And and I think this is so big. I was having a conversation with my ex, I don't know, six months ago. And he said something to me about the person he was dating. He said, she knows how to talk to me. And that hit me so hard because we didn't know we were neurodiverse. We didn't know we were two two neurotypes. So I was talking to him the way I talk to everybody else in my life. And in my family of origin, we screamed. You know, we're New York Jews. We, We screamed. In his family, they screamed too. But I think he retreated and he would shut down when the screaming happened. But I realized that maybe in the beginning of our relationship, I knew how to talk to him. But as the frustrations and the not knowing why we were both doing the things that we were doing increased, and then we had a child nine years into our marriage, and that just, you know, changes everything else. I think that I didn't know how to talk to him often, and he would shut down. And so I think that is a challenge in relationships when partners don't know that they are different neurotypes. And so I'm really interested in kind of what attracted you to Josh, you know, because there's clearly, you know, experience from the two marriages before and then finding out you're autistic, you know, at 39, what attracted you to Josh? What, what made you, or what made him attracted to you or how did that work? Well, he he gave me permission to share his answers because we okay. went through all the questions <laughs> that you sent me and we had the best conversation. We had so much fun awesome. answering these the other night together. Um, so honestly, and it, you know, I'm just I'm just me and I'm just gonna deliver it. I'm not gonna like sure. buffer it and sugarcoat it or beat around the bush. <laughs> yeah. It was purely sexual. Okay. <laughs> On both Oh both? Okay. <laughs> Oh, we both said, oh, totally, it was sexual attraction. Like, that was the first and foremost thing. But what was interesting is that I, once we kind of dug into it, because we met at the library. We were both (laughs) volunteering at the library. That isn't the kind of place you would think there'd be sexual attraction, but, Absolutely. (laughs) Right, I know, right? It's always interesting. Everybody's a little different. So, that's great. We both love books. We were both volunteering at the library. We met at the library. And we had seen each other before, but neither one of us really paid attention, which was kind of interesting. So, a few months later, we happened to be volunteering on the same day. We were both at the main desk, and we just started talking. And honestly, I think even though the sexual attraction was there, it wasn't like the first thing. I think the sexual attraction came because we connected and we Mm. were talking Mm -hmm. and we're both um, very much cerebral Mm -hmm. thinkers. We're both very, you know, big thinker people. And so we just connected there, but definitely we would, we both said that there was definitely a sexual attraction. (laughs) And he's, he is significantly younger than me, so. That's even a little more interesting to the dynamic. Good for you, Carol Jane. Good for you. Good for you. Because you're young at heart, see? So I still think I'm 22. Yeah, there you go. I'm 32. So we're we're all young, right? (laughs) Manisa, did you did you have a question for 
Yeah, I have a question. This may not be one of the questions that we sent, but hey, we're, we're off the tonight, so. Um, <laughs> I wanted to know, Carol Jean, so at this point, you, you had your, your diagnosis, yes. Okay. Yes. So when do you choose to share, to disclose, like, when did you do that with Josh? How did that, how'd that so, conversation go? Oh, I love that question. That's a great <laughs> That's question. So good. That is a great question. Um, oh, now I kind of have to think about it for a second. So we had been dating for a few months. And I guess what was really interesting is we both went into it as this will just be fun. Like, we weren't <laughs> looking for a long-term relationship. We were both in a place of transition in our lives. And so neither one of us was really looking for a relationship. We were just looking for some fun. <laughs> Mm. And it's so I wasn't like consciously thinking I was going to disclose this to anybody because I'm like, we're just having a good time. He doesn't even know anything, whatever. But after a few months, we were really talking. Like Mm. he had become somebody who meant something to me. And I don't remember exactly when or how I shared it. I think it was just more of sort of a flip side comment. (laughs) It's kind of like tossed my, my, buoy in the water and stuff that floated <laughs> right <laughs> and and i said you know well i i think it was something that had happened and i made a comment to the effect that well i'm autistic so i don't always get that mm. and he was like oh okay but he one of his best friends had a brother who was autistic so he was accustomed to being around autistic people and he kind of understood i mean he didn't know what exactly autistic meant for me, but he had experience and been around and he was, so he didn't react in any particular way. He was just like, oh, okay. He just took it kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, I have eczema. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, he was totally comfortable with it and, and you were comfortable with sharing it with him because you know, it's, it's a part of who you are. Like if you had eczema or some other health health issue, right? I so, mean, it wasn't, it was kind of, it a wasn't a big deal. <laughs> right. So, so what do you think now that you guys have been together for four years, what do you think are the greatest strengths of being in a neurodiverse relationship? Since oh you gosh. didn't, you didn't know with your first two marriages, right? You didn't know. Right. Yeah. yeah. No. So it's like, now, you know, you look right? back and you're like, man, there's so many times I would do differently, (laughs) all that. My my first ex-husband and actually and I are really good friends because we have two children together and so we co-parent together. And what's really wonderful is that since I learned I was autistic and ADHD and I learned what that meant for me, it has allowed so much healing to happen. And we have actually rekindled a really good friendship because we were such good friends. That has been a huge, wonderful thing. But as far as Josh and I, that just having a a mixed neurotype relationship, there's so many positives to it because for he and I, like we were going through some of these questions that you had sent us, Mona, and he and I have just loved it because we do see things differently. We do approach things differently, but we also have learned that because we do think differently, we recognize that it's not just one way that you see something. And just because I see something a certain way doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best way or the only way. So we have sort of a this or that conversation. And we also have sort of a yes and sort of that improv 
prompt, like a yes and question, like, yes, we could do this and we could also do this or we could do this. Um, and with that, it just because we know that we're neurodiverse, um, it has allowed grace. Oh, I love that. I love that. I think that's what's missing in so many neurodiverse relationships for the folks that come to the support groups I run. And it's on both sides, you know, not having grace on both sides. I know that I didn't have it as often as I should have. Um, and, you know, I can't speak for my ex, but I, I see it with a lot of couples. So the, I think that's a that's a big strength. And you're very fortunate that you both do have grace with each other. That's awesome. And I think absolutely. it's also the grace for yourself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because none of us are perfect. Although yeah. some people wish they were, right? <laughs> so so you you both understand each other. You give each other grace. It's like the picture of the nine. If you're looking at it from one side, you see nine. And you're looking at it from the other side, you see six. But they're both right, right? Right. I love that. I love that. So, Vanessa? So, Carol Jean, I know that, you know, I'm in a neurodiverse relationship, and I do know that autism in females present sometimes differently than with men. So, like with my husband now, we have some huge social and emotional differences. So, talk about those challenges, or do you have those challenges in your relationship? We do, and it's actually the opposite of what you would think. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, so number one, one of the things that we have learned is that autistic traits are not specific gender specific. Um, a, a particular autistic trait can present in any particular gender. It doesn't, some just tend to be more prevalent than others. So that's kind of an important thing for some people to recognize. Um, Absolutely. Because it's kind of like, you know, ADHD It's like, oh, well, that's a particular male trait or that's a female trait. Well, it kind of helps. It, it hurts the diagnostic process or the or self-identification process as well. Um, but when we're looking at that, like for us, I am incredibly social, hence the social audience. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, you Which are. Is sort of the antithesis of what most people think autistic people are or quote unquote should be, right? You shouldn't be real social. You shouldn't be real chatty and blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't, you know, communicate and talk and have fun and, and, and you know, be sensory seeking and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, that is all me. I am like the antithesis of everything you think it should be. <laughs> yes. And Josh, who is neurotypical, is Mr. House Potato, as he calls himself. <laughs> He's the house mouse. He says to me, I don't really like being in groups of people. I'm kind of an, I'm introverted and I don't want to go do all these things. So we have also one of the greatest things that we recognized, and this was a huge thing, is our energy difference. Um. So Joshua has this tiny little solar panel that charges his battery. <laughs> I, on the other hand, in a nuclear power plant. <laughs> <laughs> That's so I, my eyes fly open in the morning, my honey, my feet hit the floor and I'm gone. I am Tigger all day long. I love it. He likes to wake up slow. Don't, don't, don't talk to me till I get going for a couple of hours. He's more of the night owl. You know, one of the biggest things for us was not necessarily, sure, we've got our social differences, our social need differences, but it's always our energy difference. And it also is 
having to recognize how do we manage our energy because that plays into our relationship so much because I would be like, hey, let's go do this, this, and this on the weekend. And he would be like, uh, no, can we just stay home? Or, you know, we'll go for a walk maybe for like five minutes. But then I just really want to play Xbox and just like <laughs> hang out with my, with my dudes. And I'm just like, oh, and before we started really recognizing having this conversation, you got that story you tell yourself. And my, the story I was telling myself, and I tell it, it's like the story I'm telling myself is that you don't want to spend time with me. Yep. The story I'm telling myself is that you don't want to go do stuff with me that I, I'm not the person you want to spend time with when really the, the truth of it, you know, he and I started digging to it, had this conversation. He was just like, I totally want to spend time with you. I just don't have the energy. I'm like exhausted. I am like the wet dish rag. I have worked all week. It has taken so much out of me. And I'm like, oh, oh, I okay. I totally get that. So if you get a whole Saturday to like chill and do nothing, but like Xbox and just veg out, and, you know, do what you need to do Sunday afternoon. You've got a little more energy and we could actually, you know, plan to go do some stuff. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to plan stuff with my friends on Saturday. then." So you figured it out. You figured out what each of you need socially so that you can have time together socially. That's, yeah. that's, that's wonderful. What about the emotional piece? Like how does Josh, handle your emotions how do you handle josh's emotions like if there are you know meltdowns we'll go back to the meltdown piece um you know how is how does that get worked out in your relationship it's really amazing and we actually had this conversation for one of those questions that you sent from the cards right before we came <laughs> on to the show so well, I, I mean because i that was one of the ones i was like oh this is such a great question josh okay. was like i'm having so much fun i will <laughs> Well, let me let me tell our our listeners because um, I posted this on Instagram, but I'm putting together some neurodiverse love conversation cards because you know after being in a relationship, a marriage for 30 years, I realized there were a lot of topics we should have been talking about, and our relationship could have gone in a different direction, or things could have gone in a different direction. So I've created the cards. I have actually I got over 30 people 30 partners or couples that volunteered to test the cards and and Carol Jean was one of them and she agreed to test the questions actually for the cards so thank you for that so go ahead so, so we've been testing the questions we were diving in we were loving it because we we awesome. really Josh and I really love this so that was one of the questions that you asked and, and we actually had that conversation just before we came on and I said so how do we handle each other's emotions you know good bad ugly and in between and and I love his answer. He's always very succinct and he, he's very thoughtful. And he said, we acknowledge them, we give space to them, and we talk about them. Wow. Wow. That's pretty and awesome. It is. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll share this because this is this was a really big moment in my okay. life. The other night, Josh and I, I mean, in all these years, we don't fight. I mean, we've kind of had things that were like points of contention, you know, or a point of resistance, but we never, we don't yell. We don't get like full blown, you know, quote unquote, butthurt over stuff or whatever <laughs> you want to say. But we tend to, you know, work through stuff or recognize it. I mean, I don't know. Somehow we're just super lucky. I can't say that it's anything. Well, the third time is a charm, right? Mm -hmm. The third time is a charm. I right. want a charm bracelet for the sensors. 
I go with the full-fledged charm for it. There you go. And, and I have, I'm a celiac and I have a horrible reaction to wheat. Mm. And it's not just that it makes me sick. It's not just that it makes my joints swell. It affects me mentally mm. and emotionally. Like I get really irritable. I get super teary. It is like, I can't control. I'm like, wow. you know, I, I look at a little cat picture and I start crying. I mean, it's, it is like intense and I didn't know it for years. So I was constantly living like this, not realizing it, but I got something in my food and I didn't realize it. And it was something I, a new product I had bought it was supposed to be safe, but I missed this one little silent ingredient that I didn't mm. notice on the label and how we, Mm. and I had been eating it a couple of days, not realizing it. And the next thing I know, I am like irritable. I was not being my best self. I was kind of a cranky pants. I was teary and crying. And I just, I was just like, oh, I'm just upset. And I was telling him about why I was upset. And he wasn't, he was trying to communicate to me and he was trying to be gentle and point out, well, honey, this is kind of a pattern thing and let's take a look at it, right? And my first response was, oh my gosh, you don't want, you don't want to be with me. I'm too much. Like that was the story I was telling myself, you know, going back to some of those earlier things. Mm -hmm. But I caught myself and I went, that's not true. Because mm. I have to ask myself, oh, is that true, right? That's one of the best questions you can ask yourself about it. Absolutely. Like, is that true? I'm like, no, I trust him. And I mm. know that he loves me. And I know that he is trying to communicate with me. And so I was able to take that in just a few seconds and go, okay, I know you're not trying to hurt my feelings. And I know that this is just kind of messy right now. And we've agreed that we just work through it messy. That messy is okay. Because contrast and resistance creates clarity and if we're not willing to recognize that we're being served and it's an opportunity of service when we've got these points of resistance and sort of this messy part that we have to work through the messy because we can't work to a point of understanding if we're not willing to get a little i agree unperfect and messy yeah. and I by agree. the time we got to the end of it you know we were reflecting back using that question to the other night and I shared with him I said do you know that that was probably the biggest aha that I had and it was about us recognizing each other's emotions because I wow. recognize that you weren't trying to hurt my feelings and I can trust you and you recognize that I was overwhelmed and there was definitely something going on that was out of the norm and you were trying to help me work through it and we did it together and we just kept going no matter how uncomfortable we felt because we knew that we both had the same goal and outcome. And that was to find a place where we both knew we were safe and loved and it was secure. Wow. Oh, I think that, that I, I, there's just so many nuggets of gold um, that we've already talked about. I think this is so important for neurodiverse or neurodistinct couples. I think I'm going to speak for myself. I think there were so many times that I thought my ex doesn't want to be with me. My ex thinks I'm too much. My ex is not valuing what I have to say. My ex is shutting down. And I didn't ask myself, is that really true? And I think 
for my ex, um, he would often give me cards when he saw that I was upset and he didn't, I don't know if he was going mute, you know, he couldn't find the words. He would go out and get a card and the cards literally said exactly what I needed to hear, but he couldn't use the words. And I've shared this before, but I think it's really important for neurodiverse couples to understand that they're not going to communicate the same way when they're both emotional. And we judge, we so judge. I did it over and over and over again. And I know I caused so much unintentional hurt. I never meant to hurt my ex ever, ever, ever. Um, and, and I know, I don't really think he ever meant to hurt me. I just don't think we did because we loved each other so much, but that happens over and over again. So what you've shared and what you and Josh do, and I know, you know, you have had so much, you know, self-training and you've done so much of your own work, but it sounds like Josh has too. And it makes for such a, I'm going to say blessed. That's the first word that came to me, blessed relationship. So thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. Thank you. I think there's another area too that is um, challenging sometimes because of the different ways of thinking um, and processing. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how Josh and you do that with each other, your thinking and your processing differences and how you work together coming from a place of compassion and love. That's been a really big one. Um, that's something because I have an auditory processing delay mm. and when I'm tired or it's later in the day, it's, it's much more exaggerated. It's much more difficult and challenging for me to navigate and process. Here's the, here's the catch 22. I'm an auditory processor. Oh, wow. so I need to talk to work through something, but it takes yeah. me a minute to process when someone else says it. And this wow. Is, something I'm finding is quite common among other autistic people with auditory processing delays. Um, so the more I started to talk about it. So that was, that was something really in late identified life, the biggest, the biggest helps, the biggest healing that has happened is me being able to recognize what is showing up for me. Mm. what being autistic means to me and what other layers in this lasagna that I got going, you know, auditory processing delays, alexithymia, and just finding those little small components mm-hmm. makes such a huge healing difference because then I'm able to go, okay, I'm okay. And it translates yeah. into our relationships and how we communicate because I can look at Josh now and I can go, He's, he's just gotten home from work. He's just sat down. He has to have like, Minnie's mentioned this and it's something I think it's really important. I wanted to ask her this question too. We have to have transition time. Like we all need, all humans, we have transition times and our transition time needs are different. Um, you know, like I need 10 minutes just to play on my phone while I'm sitting in the car before I go into the grocery store. <laughs> you know, it's just recognizing those little kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And one of those is in communication. It's like, do you immediately have an answer for something or do you need a moment to process? Um, and 
and recognizing and giving people latitude. So like Josh comes home after work and he likes to have his transition time as like, don't talk to me. I'm gonna put my headset on. I'm gonna get on my Xbox and I'm just gonna like zone out and just do nothing and let my brain like calm down. So I'm like, okay. But one afternoon, and this was kind of recent, he got home and I had had a day. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd had a day. <laughs> and I had all the stuff going on and my high speed nuclear power plant is in overdrive because I'm upset. Right. <laughs> I need to get it out. And I looked at him and I said, I know this is your transition time and I don't need you to fix it. I don't need you to do anything. I don't even care if you really listen or pay attention. I just need you to sit there because I got to get it out. I think that's great. And what did he do? He looked at me and said, okay. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he lifts back in his chair and I like bet verbally, you know, just yep. let it all out. Just I dumped through. it on him. I worked yeah. through because as I'm hearing myself, I'm working through whatever it was. And I looked at him and I'm like, okay, thanks. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and he didn't and really like, do anything. You know, well, he just sat there, right? Right. He gave me that space. But what was interesting, I love this about him. He looks at me and he goes, all right, now I got a question. I'm like, okay. Because <laughs> I'm thinking he wasn't even listening, you know, but he was half listening. I mean, he's like, sometimes I feel really bad because I, I feel like I should be listening, but I just can't. I'm like, no, I know. <laughs> I know when you're not listening. I see the glaze. It's good. It, it, I'm totally just dumping from my own processing. And he looked at me and he goes, well, have you thought about this? And I went, Choop, game changer. Okay. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. So, so I think this is really important for our listeners. I saw this over and over again because my ex's brain and the way he processed things was so rational and logical. And um, I would share stuff with him from a very emotional place because something got me pissed off or whatever. And he could hear it. And the way he could process it was so different than me that he could do like Josh did and just say one thing. And it just was something I had never thought about. And yeah, yeah. It, and I think that's wonderful. It's one like, of those blessings of a neurotype perspective. It, it it really is. It's it's really. I think it's a strength of a neurodiverse relationship for sure. For sure. Well, we do that in reverse too, because he'll yeah. he'll say something. I'm like, okay, well, here's the here's what I see. This is the process structure and framework, and here's all the clear <laughs> patterns. Don't you see this glaring pattern? No, here it is. And he's like. Oh, I thought of that. So it, it's it really is such a great thing to be able to step back and and take in that opposite perspective and really respect and appreciate it. Yeah, and and do it with compassion rather than mm -hmm. anger. Yeah, Manisa. Yeah, I I think that's very important that the compassion piece. That's where um, your relationship has transformed because now you're understanding mm -hmm. who you really are and you are responding to each other as opposed to reacting to each other. Yes, I agree. I agree. Are there other um, strengths and maybe differences that you would like to share with our listeners that you think would be helpful that you've experienced with Josh? All right. <laughs> Here we is go. He, is he listening? Is he listening? <laughs> Not really. He's got okay. <laughs> There are a lot of times where, you know, sometimes we have these appropriateness levels, but yeah. I think that to be from a place of service to really sort of give people things that are going to make a difference in the relationships, 
Yeah. Sometimes you got to just let go some of those societal expectations and those kind of things. I agree. I'm going to talk about sex. Yay. (laughs) And I'm going to talk about sex with a purpose. Okay. Because sex is a language and a communication all its own. Mm-hmm. In our romantic relationships, we've got, you know, in, in all relationships, we're talking about communication styles, relationship types, and we're doing all of this stuff. One of the components that is least talked about and one of the biggest components in our relationship is our sex, our Absolutely. physical language. Mm-hmm. And often that has to be bridged in a neurodiverse, neurodistinct relationship as well, because we have sensory challenges. We have sensory aversions. We have sensory seeking. How we experience sex can is also emotional and intellectual. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also a spiritual thing for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. And when you have two different neurotypes and even just men and women and right. you know, if non-binary, bisexual, whatever you've right. got going on in your relationship, you experience sex from your own perspective. Absolutely. And you experience it on all these different levels. And one of the greatest things that have happened and that Josh and I have found within our relationship, remember we started out just being really sexually attracted to each other. <laughs> yeah, that's sex what you told a, us. <laughs> sex is a really big part of our communication. It really is. And it, and it has been in a lot of ways. And I think it is probably he and I were talking about this before the show, going through some of your questions, and it brought this up, which is why I'm bringing it up now. So those cards are great. Okay. One of the things that he and I both agreed on was that because we had learned or navigated communicating about what we like in sex, Mm-hmm. what we don't like, what we're comfortable with, what our sensory needs mm-hmm. and challenges were with sex because mm-hmm. we both had them. Mm-hmm. Because we had delved into that, we then took that and it translated into all the other areas of our relationship. So mm-hmm. we found that we communicate about other things that are non-sexual in the same way that we approached having some of our sexual conversations about, well, you know, what do you like? Well, do you like that kind of, is that a boundary for you? Is that comfortable? And we can translate that into our, our emotions, you know, and our, to our social choices that. and what we do together. And so often that's not talked about. Nobody wants, you know, people get uncomfortable. They get freaky. They're like, I want to talk about sex, but I don't want to talk about sex. Yeah. I love that. I love, love, love that. I think sex is a love language. I think that in any relationship, it needs to be something that both uh, partners feel comfortable talking about since it is the most intimate thing that you're going to do in your love relationship. And I am so glad that you brought that up. I think there are a lot of um, folks that attend the support group that I run for the neurotypicals who have had challenges in their um, sex life with their partner and they don't feel comfortable talking about it. And so I think, you know, this is probably an episode that we could do, you know, an hour or two on. And maybe there's opportunities to have conversations like outside of the bedroom. Um, you know, I, I do have a few of the cards that talk about that, about 
what turns you on, what you feel comfortable with, um, what you don't like, and having those conversations on a walk, someplace where it's safe, right? You know, having coffee together. Because I, I remember there were times when those conversations were held in the bedroom with my ex, and that was not the right time for them. So, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you, Josh and I had them over text. Oh, I, that's great too. That's fabulous. And um, I actually, you know, I love eroticism. And um, uh, we used to love watching erotic films together. I, it was it was a great way to explain, you know, what we both liked or what we were both interested in. So I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up because there are a lot what? of differences in that area. There really are. We so need to do a show because it really is important. It's one of the it's one of the things on my bucket list for my podcast. Okay. Okay. All right. Awesome. Well, we have definitely talked about everything imaginable, and we could probably go for another few hours. But I know we usually only do the podcast for an hour, and we've gone over that. But I want to know if there's anything else that when you knew you were going to come on the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. If there's anything else that you thought you wanted to share with our listeners that maybe you wish you had known in your other relationships or something you're like, okay, I'm going to teach my son this or whatever. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to share before we close out? Thank you for asking that. That is a really good question because it's one that is from a place of wanting to serve others because it's uncomfortable to look back on relationships that weren't successful mm -hmm. and that didn't work out. And if I look back on my two marriages and I could tell my sons, and this is something that I do tell them, they're teenagers, they're dating, you know, mm -hmm. they have romantic interest. And it's one of the things that I do share. You have to love yourself. Mm. You have to look in the mirror, butt naked with all your warts and all your stuff, all the things that you think in your head. And you got to be able to look at that person that's mm -hmm. reflected back and love them. Mm -hmm. Because until you can do that, you truly cannot fully experience love in a relationship. I got chills. Yeah. That is, that's it, Carol Jane. That's it. That's so true. That is so true. And that's that both is, ways. That's the right. neurodiverse as well as the neurotypical. Mm -hmm. that, that's yeah. the human inside. That's the human. Yeah. 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 Because we try to be something for our partner that we're not. And we people please or we fight about things because we think we're right. And, you know, it's our trauma or it's our family of origin things that we didn't deal with. I, I hear you a hundred percent. Thank you. I think that's a great place for us to end. That, that's really beautiful. Manisa, do you have any last thoughts, questions, words that you want to share? Carol Jean, you just keep shining at your high voltage energy. <laughs> Your nuclear power Yeah, your nuclear It is just spreading so much power and light into the world. And you're doing a great work. Wonderful yeah. work. I so agree. Carol Jean, 
I am inspired by you. I am excited to see how many people have an opportunity to learn from you and to grow and to heal and to become their best selves because they had an opportunity to spend some time with you and to hear from you, whether it's through your own podcast or trainings that you do and workshops. And hopefully, you know, there'll be both neurotypical and autistic mm -hmm. partners that will hear this episode and they'll both learn together. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here and tell Josh we say hi. <laughs> I, I will. I will tell him. Thank you okay. so much for having me.